we're doing something a little different. If this is the very first episode of AOC you're checking out, then first of all, welcome! And thank you for giving us a listen! Normally, we would discuss a specific comic, but in this episode, we're going through the history of Yaoi. And because of that, I'll give some trigger warnings up front, because Yaoi is a diverse and sometimes highly problematic genre. It delves into topics like sexual abuse, skewed positions of power, age difference, and other quite frankly difficult themes. While I will never go too in-depth or describe anything too graphic, it felt necessary to mention this upfront as it is undeniably a big part of the category. With that said though, I hope you enjoyed this fun and sometimes surprisingly deep chat, because we had a great time recording it. You can find us at tumblr.com slash artofpod, at the Art of Podcast on Twitter, and at the Art of Comics Pod on Insta. Let's get queer! Alrighty, attention students, we're gathered here for a special class. I'm your teacher, Joss, and normally I'm a streamer and artist, but today I'm holding a very special educational episode in Yaoi. Hi, I'm Paul, and usually I'm a comic creator, but today I am Jaws's very attentive student. Very good, very good. I have a little bit of knowledge, but it's mostly just sort of, you know, I was personally into Yaoi and BL as a teenager and continued to be up until a certain point and haven't read any for absolutely ages. That's actually funny that you bring that up on, uh, yourself because my very first note is, what is your experience with Yaoi? Like, what's what's your knowledge? What's your personal story? So first of all, I remember calling it BL rather than Yaoi. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't know whether this is sort of quote unquote technically correct, but at least within my little group of friends, when I was a teenager, BL meant boys love comics and they tended to be kind of like more romancy with the occasional sex scene and yaoi was straight up smut yaoi was like gay porn and that's the distinction that we had now i don't know if that's the same distinction that everybody else had but regardless i read a reasonable amount of both (laughs) (laughs) and i think probably from the age of about kind of 16 up until the age of about sort of 26 27 i was sort of reading various different kinds like that from time to time watching anime as well if you stick out Song of Wind and Trees sticks out as well. And that's really that. That's my experience. Oh, and, and sort of the um, the late night room at anime conventions when I was old enough to go to it as well. Oh, that's funny. That's really funny. Do you have any experience with the Yaoi paddle? I was not going to include this because yes. it's not really relevant for this. But I just, since you brought up conventions and stuff, I just wanted to ask if you know of the lore. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Yeah, yeah, I was very much into all of those sort of proto-memes back then. It was never really a huge thing here in Norway as far as I'm concerned. Some people are now probably... My 60 female listeners in Norway are probably going, No! It was fucking huge! I'm sorry, feel free to correct me, but <laughs> I personally had no experience with it. So we're not gonna dwell on the lore of the Yaoi paddle. Just Google it if you're interested. It's not that exciting. It's going to sound very mysterious. Before, if anybody has no idea what Yaoi or BL is, all of this is going to sound almost arcane, I think. (laughs) Um, So, Luckily, I'm here to educate. I want to give a couple of disclaimers before we jump in. 
the most important is that there's going to be a lot of Japanese names here. And I just want to say between speaking uh, somewhat decent English and somewhat decent Norwegian, my ESL brain does this thing where I can't decide if I want to Englishify the Japanese or try to stay more true to the nature, which is easier in Norwegian. If I mispronounce anything, I'm terribly sorry. I swear I've even looked up several names to try to get it correctly. But I know that in the moment, I will probably stumble and stutter. And that is not out of disrespect. It's just because I'm not Japanese. And I'm also dealing with two different languages <laughs> in my brain at any given time. It's more than I can deal with. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to get that straight out of the gate. The other is that I may be wrong on facts here. I've done my best to do thorough research, but there's only so many sources I can look into when it comes to something as niche as Yaoi. So if I get anything wrong, if you're sitting there and going like, mm, 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 teacher, then I'm very sorry. And again, feel free to yell at me on social media. I, I can handle it. I think. I'm a big girl. And as I said uh, last episode, I will be uncritically absorbing everything as the whole truth. So... <laughs> All right, since there's probably a couple of people sitting here going right now at a lot of the stuff we already said, I compiled a tiny little list of terminology up front. So I'm going to go through those just to give a little tiny hints for you to hang stuff upon. And if you forget this the moment I say it, don't worry, I'm the same. But you're free to take notes along with teacher. <laughs> the first word is shoujo manga, which literally translated means girls comic. And it's primarily for adolescent girls and young adult women. And some famous examples are Sailor Moon, Card Captain Sakura, Fruits Basket, and My Love Story. Then you have the word Bishonen, which means beautiful boy. In manga settings, it's often used to describe boys and young men rendered in an androgynous beauty. And then you have Bara, which is gay manga made by and for gay men, which is the differentiation between bar and yaoi, because uh, this is generic, of course, but yaoi is gay manga made by and for women. So in contrast to yaoi, where the male characters are portrayed in a more stereotypically feminine style, bar brings out the burly bears. Funnily enough, though, the term bara literally translates to rose in Japanese, and this is where I went, hmm, this is a fun fact. While the flower itself is usually viewed as a more delicate and dainty flower, the term rose was used in Japan as a slur to describe gay men. Much like pansy was used in the English language. Oh, interesting. I had no idea about Same. that. Same. I, I didn't either before I did this research. Yeah. Pansy is a bit old fashioned now, but it, uh, it was definitely a thing when I was younger. Yeah. And that's where I wrote in my notes, leave it to the gays to embrace the derogatives and make them something beautiful and powerful. <laughs> yes. And then as I touched upon, last but not least, Yaoi, which is gay manga made by and for women. This is, of course, not a universal rule, but it is the simplest way to separate it from its more masculine sibling, Bara. So... Those are some of the terminologies. There will be others, but yeah, I hope the rest will be somewhat understandable. Alrighty, so are we ready to dive into the history of Yaoi itself? Absolutely, yeah. Sweet. Take me away, teacher. Also, if you have any questions along the way, feel free to interrupt me. I might, sometimes I might just be, oh, we do touch upon that further down the line, or I might not be able to answer it at all. But if there is anything you want to expand upon or whatever, don't feel hesitant about interrupting me. Okay, cool. Will do. Kicking off, the word yaoi, also known as the boy love genre, which you already touched upon, is a self-mocking shortening of the Japanese phrase 
Yamanashi, Ochinashi, Iminashi, which translates to no climax, no point, no meaning. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd heard that before, but I totally forgot about I it. I actually, once again, hadn't. So I sat here laughing like a little schoolgirl, just like, <laughs> but then as I further noted, through my very serious research these last couple of weeks, I found that there is indeed a more elaborate history behind the infamous manga genre. And right away, we need to go all the way back to ancient times in Japan. Because both homosexuality and androgyny used to play a big part in the Japanese culture. They had Shudo, which was same-sex relationship between a samurai and their companion. As well as Kagama, which was a male sex worker serving as apprentice kabuki actors. Just in case anybody don't know what kabuki is, it's a classical form of Japanese theater. This is where in my note I wrote, big shock, westernization fucking it up again. Because during the <laughs> Meiji era, spanning from 1868 to 1912, social attitudes towards homosexuality grew more hostile with the introduction of, for example, anti-sodomy laws. And in case oh. some people out there don't know, anti-sodomy laws is basically just a way to hinder people with a penis and a butt to fornicate. <laughs> it's a... Uh, Yep. It's a whole lot of mess, and if you want to do a deep dive into that, be my, be my guest. We're not going to dwell on that, though. Japanese history is far too complex for me to cover here, but the TLDR is that Japan went from being a rather closed-off country to suddenly adapting a lot of Western ideals and standards. Which, to put it bluntly, is a fucking shame. <laughs> yeah. Not, not that it was the ideal culture before, necessarily, but I'm sure we didn't help. <laughs> no, again, this is where I'm going to, of course, be... Totally transparent and say that I'm not a history teacher and my knowledge of Japanese history or any world history is abysmal. It's not great. I think the point I'm trying to make here somewhat flimsily is that we see this happen again and again in different cultures that weren't originally Christian. Whereas the moment Christianity was introduced, a lot of gender roles and sexualities just got squelched out they just got crushed thanks christianity yeah not to make any <laughs> christians feel horrible or anything i'm sure this is uh you know not news to a lot of people but it's it's undeniably a fact that we've had cultures even for i can speak of something that i do have a tiny bit of knowledge is which is viking culture where uh, women had much more prominent roles uh, same-sex relationships wasn't frowned upon the same way that it has been within Christianity. And then, boom, here comes Christianity into Norway. And then a lot of that stuff got erased because, you know, you aren't allowed to be gay the gay way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, thanks to the shift in culture, the depiction of homosexuality now had to be portrayed through subtext. And this is where the painter and magazine illustrator Kasho enters the frame. No pun intended on that joke. His work can be viewed as a very as the very early roots of the Yaoi we know today, which is the Taisho Shishin, spanning from the Taisho era starting in 1912 and going all the way through the Showa era, ending in 1989. So he had a pretty long span. And his work depicted effeminate yet gender-fluid characters not bound by the norms of society. And if you've never looked up this person's art, I, I had never heard of it before, doing research yet again for this and I was so blown away by how old this is by now and how modern and contemporary it looks. Interesting. I've never heard of this artist before. I'm really excited to see what his work looks like. Yeah, I, I can safely say that the moment I googled it, sadly I think Google is lacking a lot of 
his work displayed publicly, but I do think there is a museum preserving and honoring his work in Japan. There was especially one illustration that I saw where two samurai men are holding around one another and then kind of fending off something off frame that we as the viewer don't see. And they it's just like something in their tender embrace and their protection of one another is very beautiful. And I just went, mm -hmm, yeah, I can see the yaoi root starting here. Yeah, because that sort of like sense of almost a sort of like a safe, gentle place Yeah, um, that yaoi can be sometimes is what came to mind when you mentioned that. Absolutely. So I definitely recommend giving the Googs a go to check this dude out. Hey, just some post-edit notes from teacher here. While recording this, I could not for the life of me pronounce this guy's name correctly. The artist I'm talking about is called Takabatake Kasho, and what he's most known for is his Taisho Chic Vision. You can also find all these names in the show notes. Alrighty, back to class. As I mentioned, the work is incredibly soft and delicate. His illustrations in the shonen manga magazine Nihon Shonen lay the foundation for the bishonen aesthetic, tender, fragile, and feminine boys and men placed in homoerotic scenarios. Mm. Then we do a little time jump up to 1961, where the novel A Lover's Forest by writer Mari Mori was released. It depicts the relationship between a professor and his younger male lover, Mori was influenced by European literature, especially Gothic literature. It's in her work that a lot of the tropes of shonenai and yaoi emerge. The Western exoticism, educated and wealthy characters, the big age gap between characters, and other fantastical or even surreal settings. And I think when I read this, I was like, mm, yes, this makes a lot of sense because I, as someone who's read quite a lot of yaoi, this, these are all tropes that I immediately recognized. Yeah, absolutely. It's like you're reading off uh, what's what that makes the most typical yaoi you can imagine. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I, I do think it's really cool how these people, both Maramori and Kasho, had to work through that subtext that I mentioned, and yet they became so influential. It's kind of like all the queers or people who were tuned into the queer dar were just like, mm, I see what you're doing and I'm liking it. <laughs> Yeah, and it's something um, I if I don't know if you get the same impression. Even when I read a yaoi that goes full out, you know, there are there are men having sex in it. There's something that still seems like it's sort of subtextual. There's something that never feels completely grounded in the real world about these scenes and characters in a way that it's quite hard to put your finger on sometimes. Yeah, I'm actually really curious by the time we get to the end of this and I start going through the more problematic content of Yaoi that maybe some of that will highlight what you're addressing now. So until the mid-1960s, most manga for girls were created by men. Hideko Mitsuno, one of the first successful female shoujo manga artists, released Fire! Exclamation mark in 1969. Fire depicted and eroticized male homosexuality in American rock and roll culture, and this fucking blew my mind, Paul, because oh, Yaoi is this. basically rooted in fan fiction depicting stuff like David Bowie and Freddie Mercury from Queen. <laughs> that somehow makes so much sense. Right? It's like, I know this term is so dated today, but the metrosexuality that these guys like exuded, it really makes sense if you. If you have the visual imagery of Bowie or Mercury, and then you have any kind of relationship with either Sean and I or Yaoi, it's just like, ah, mm, oh, yes, <laughs> this 
This all makes sense yeah. now. Yeah, these, you know, like, tall, pale-haired, often very Western-looking characters are such a trope in Yaoi as well. Yeah, I didn't include this in my notes because I was worried about making this just note fiesta where I just copied whatever source I was using, but so I'm probably going to get this fact a little bit wrong. There were, I'm pretty sure, a Swedish actor from around the same time that played a heavy influence on how some characters, especially in Banana Fish, where they are very heavily based on this, I do believe, Swedish actor and, you know, young Scandinavian men. I know a lot of them want to think that they're these bearded, burly baras that, you know, Viking, (laughs) but a lot of them are quite effeminate at a young age, so... It makes sense yeah. that a lot of the, the roots come from, from Europe, basically. Right. Already learning. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, me doing these notes, it's been the same for me. I've, I'm coming out of this knowing so much more than I did going in. I, I didn't expect there to be so much lore on this. That's fun, though. That's, that's the best kind of research is when you're, you're, you're stumbling across new stuff. Yeah, I agree. And like I noted, if this is true, it means shipping has deep roots within Yaoi, which I think oh. is amazing. Yes. In a way, I guess you could see it as sort of like very, very early shipping culture within comics. Yeah. I know it had its own independent roots in, I think, specifically Star Trek fan fiction back in the 60s. Correct me on that. But uh, yeah, it definitely it had its roots, its independent roots in, in Star Trek fan fiction of all places. Which is interesting. I just think that's so great. And I'm trying to remember if I do mention this down the line. I think I maybe cut it out. But there was a lot of reporting on how basically the entire Yahoo scene just started as fan content. Like lewd fan content to sell at conventions. And so I, I think that's just amazing. So the 1970s marked a fundamental formation of the genre. The Year 24 group was formed, and members of the group included Kaiko Takamiya, Ryoko Yamagishi, and Moto Hagio. And this new generation of shoujo manga introduced greater diversity of themes, drawing inspiration from Japanese and European literature, cinema, and history. Which I also think is very visible in, again, as we harken back to it. The Euro-esque feel is quite present in Yaoi. Yeah, we have a few prints from one of those artists hanging on our wall, and it's all very kind of, the rooms are sort of very Rococo European, and there's a big kind of Western-style piano in the print, and it's all clearly like deeply influenced by probably a lot of French culture, mm. I know, um, was was uh, was particularly sort of like attractive back then, especially with Rosa Versailles and Stuff of, of that kind. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And notable works from this era are The Heart of Thomas by Hagio and Kase Toki no Uta by Takemiya. Both Hagio and Takemiya often depicted tragic romances between androgynous bishonen set in a historic European location. And these mangas were initially aimed at adolescent girls and young women, but simultaneously attracted both adult gay and lesbian readers, which I personally think makes a lot of sense. I can only imagine there's been a fucking drought in content for these groups of people. So even, for example, if you're a lesbian and you get some fucking gay food, be it like sex between two cis men, you're still like, "Mm, Gordon Ramsay and finally some good fucking food. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Do you think that that might have been something to do with your own like attraction to the genre when you were younger? It's uh, funny that you mentioned that because we are going to touch upon that upon the end. Oh. <laughs> oh. 
self-published work, also known as Dojinshi, developed as a subculture in this time slot, and in 1975, the first Comicet was hosted. Comicet, shortened for Comic Market, is a convention that first and foremost focuses on the sale of non-commercial, self-published works. And this is where the term Yaoi first emerged. It was used as a tongue-in-cheek label for Shonen Ai and gay manga. This is also something that I might be getting a little bit off the books because I didn't jot it in here, but I do remember that Yaoi was, has a different meaning inside Japan than outside of Japan, which has caused a lot of confusion. Outside of Japan, it's just been unanimously known as male gay manga, where sex is often involved. As far as I understood, within the Dojinshi scene, it refers to any sexual content. It doesn't necessarily have oh. to be gay. And I don't know how correct this is, but I it made me go, oh, okay, that's interesting. I can see that be very confusing when you mm. go after labels. Yeah, well, it's certainly the case that because, especially pre-internet, there was no way for people to have proper access to the way that these terms were being used in their culture of origin. So, like I said, you know, amongst my friends, yaoi meant porn, but only gay porn. Mm -hmm. And BL or Shonen Ai, which is just Japanese for boys' love, was the sort of gentler stuff that didn't necessarily have sex scenes in. But again, that was just a quirk of, you know, probably a handful of people who were talking about it in that particular way. I don't know if to this day that is still the, the case that Yaoi is still used to just describe sexual acts within Dojinshi, or if it now just encompasses gay manga. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. One of the things about trying to write a potted history of language like this is that language can vary amongst very small subcultures over very small time spans and two groups of people within the same country or within even within the same industry or scene can be using a word slightly differently mm -hmm. from each other and it's very difficult to recover or record that kind of stuff. So the unexpected success of early Shonen Ai and Yaoi paved the way for female creators and opened up a market publishers sought to exploit. The Sean and I magazine June started publishing in 1978, and its coverage on homosexuality, literary fiction, illustrations, and amateur yaoi works became so popular that June Mono, or simply June, began competing with Sean and I as a term for the genre. And this is also something I saw oh. that on the list where you have yaoi, Sean and I, and stuff, June was also an accepted term there for the genre. And I've never heard that one. Same. One that I have heard that we used to use, and I don't know if this was just an Englishism because it's an English word, was a lemon. A lemon specifically was a piece of fan fiction or a dojinshi that had gay or sexual content in it. Holy shit, you just unlocked the core memory in me. I had completely forgotten that, but you're so right. This is, I think this certainly is English, like you say, but that's, wow. I, You know the meme of the dude with the exploding galaxy in his brain? Just, <laughs> <laughs> that was me upon you. <laughs> saying the word lemon in this context. What's with lemons being a sexual term, though? I don't know. I'd like to dig into that and find out where that comes from. Yeah. That was very much a sort of an early webcomic kind of thing. That was the sort of scene I was in when I was hearing that term a lot. Alrighty, so I went digging, as I promised Paul I would do, and my private eye expertise brought me to fanlore.org. And here it states that lemon is a term from anime fandom used to designate a work with explicit erotic content. The term derives from an early pornographic anime slash hentai from the 80s called Cream Lemon. A piece of fanfiction which includes the word lemon in its title can be expected to be pure porn. Others might warn that a work contains a hint of lemon or lime. The more you know. Yeah, 
Here I actually mentioned that. As we say in Norwegian, a beloved child has many names, and that is indeed the case for the boy love category of manga. At some point, several of these terms became interchangeable and can be referred to as both Shonenai, Tambi, Juno, Yaori, or simply BL. And while the roots of all of these terms are slightly different, I don't think anyone but true purists would correct you today. However, since I grew up knowing only Shonenai and Yaoi, those are the terms I'll stick to for the rest of this class. I just thought it was interesting to highlight how broad this theme really is. Yeah, and I've certainly seen a lot of sometimes quite heated debates about how the terms should be used and what they really mean. And I think anybody who is arguing that vociferously for language to conform to their expectations kind of is missing the point. <laughs> I think oof, this is a this is a rough thing to have an opinion on, I guess. But I guess kind of related to us being in Pride Month and having a very prided up section of our podcast right now. Language is always evolving, and then you can talk about reclaiming and stuff. Because I don't know if you've seen this, but every year this this blows my mind. Every year when June comes around and all the corporate folks out there start recognizing that gay is a thing that they can make money off of. Time to jump on the pride bandwagon and rake in the cash. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So the only month that gay people actually exist, instead of being angry at the big man, I feel like every year I have to suffer in silence and watch the queer community tear one another apart. Mm. That's when some gay people go out and say, uh, but ace and aromantic people don't fit under our banner. And then you have the, the youth, the Zoomers, who's like, queer is a slur, and I don't like that you call us that. And I'm just sitting here like, guys, 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 why are we fighting one another? This is what they want. <laughs> and queer is the word that I'm getting to here, where I personally, I love the word queer, but that has been used as a slur. I feel that long since the gay community have reclaimed that word and taken it back. But to this day, there are people who will flip their shit and be very offended if you either refer to them as queer or they even hear the word. I've seen people refer to themselves as queer and then some chronically online person is like, um, teacher, you can't use that's the bad word. That's a no-no word. And then the queer person is like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Let me just use it. <laughs> so in terms of like the whole what word should you use to describe a genre is kind of, ugh, I don't know, dude. Yeah, it's trivial compared to that. And and not even that, but it's it's such a nothing burger of a hill to die on for me. If you want to call it June and I want to call it Yaoi, we still understand what we're talking about. Like a spade is still a fucking spade. And I think that, you know, with both with terms like queer and reclaimed slurs and also with, you know, less charged terms like terms for genres and so on. Whether you lived through an era makes a huge difference. Mm. People can talk about whether something's been reclaimed, whether something hasn't, what they want to use, what they don't want to use. But for example, for someone who's gay who lived through an era where they heard queer so many times in a negative connotation, they might not psychologically ever be able to get over that. And they can't change that fact because everyone else claims it's reclaimed. Likewise with Yaoi or BL, if, if you lived through it, if you were part of that subculture and you used a particular term, it's very hard to get over that psychologically and, and adjust to other people using what you perceive as the incorrect term. So I think that like language is it's fascinating how it creates these responses in us. And I think those responses are just strongest when there's deep lived experience behind them. Yeah, no, you're you're one hundred percent right, and as always, you're you're putting it way more elegantly than I ever could, with way more compassion and care. I'm just like, shut the fuck up, kids. <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah you're you're so right and i think the point i'm trying to once again very flimsily make is that both sides of this debate is valid but i think it's the way that people meet in the middle and discuss it because if i met a person who was like mm, i'm offended by the word queer i'd be like okay that's valid for you but i love the word and i'm gonna keep using it for me but i will never mm. refer to you as it for example I think I th this is where a lot of people struggle to meet in the middle. And it's a growing sense, I think, in, in modern debates, especially around pride and queer culture and so on, that as a society, we should all be universally agreeing on the way we use language, because we've recognised that language can be harmful. Mm. We've recognised that language can define and hold back institutions or alter institutions. There's a lovely, meaningful, well-meaning intent behind that a lot of the time. But when it hits reality, when it hits the way that language evolves in subcultures in parallel, when it hits the messy life of a word out in the world, that desperate need for things to be the right thing all of the time just breaks down inevitably. And we can treat each other well, we can treat each other with good intent, but it's very, very hard to control the way that an entire culture, let alone an entire world, uses language. Yeah. Yeah, kind of in the similar vein of this is not the podcast where I will remotely try to decipher Japanese history and culture on large. <laughs> I will also not try to make anyone decide for an entire people what words should and should not be used for everyone. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's above and beyond my pay grade right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we do this for free and because it's fun and uh, I don't need more people being upset at me than they already probably are. <laughs> Yeah, but I think it's, you know, like, I, I really appreciate that you mentioned language here, because it's something, obviously, you can tell I really care about, especially in my own writing as well. I think those caveats are really worth putting down, even in a subject like this, where it's it's sort of like a, a niche genre inside what is going to be, to the majority of our audience, a foreign culture. It's, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's worth doing. Yeah, absolutely. But it is also interesting, because you touching upon the fact that it's niche, it brings to mind that the more secluded something is, the more people will bicker and argue over it, at least in my experience. That's why fandoms oh. in general are so tiresome and I never participate in them. I'm always on the sideline doing my stuff if I like something and talking about it with friends and loved ones and sharing opinions that way. But I never have the urge to go deep diving into fandoms and be like, mm -mm, oh. actually, actually. And I think, or actually, I wonder why that is a thing in human psyche to become a little bit of a stickler when you get overly protective over something. It's this weird yeah. ownership that you claim or something that isn't yours. Yeah, you've made me had a bit of a galaxy brain moment just now as well, actually. I, th I think when you said specifically that it's within those niche cultures, I was like, yes, it really is. And maybe it's a combination of things. Maybe it's partly what I was saying earlier about people having lived through things and having surrounded their life with a particular thing that makes it matter more to them. But also perhaps the smaller a niche is, the more strong the illusion that you can control its content is, even though it's, you know, it's made up of a network of people talking to each other and interacting and coming to agreements and disagreements. There's no way to control that necessarily. It's, it's a decentralized thing by its nature. But there will be the smaller the network, the more the push and pull 
is going to affect it. And the more sense of influence an individual within that network can have over the whole network. Yeah, I really wonder if it tickles our little monkey brain that there has to be a hierarchy in any fucking given sense. So if you can be the mean boss bitch of the fandom, then that's your little hierarchy bubble. And then you kind of won the monkey brain lottery. <laughs> yeah. I Again, I'm... I'm quite amused that our topic of Yahweh is bringing us some really fucking deep places. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me bring us all the way back to class. By the 1990s, Yahweh had truly hit the mainstream. As many as 30 magazines were devoted to the category, and instead of leaning on the more tragic narrative that was more commonly found within the genre in the 70s and 80s, Yahweh now opted for a more comedic structure. And probably the most famous series from this decade is uh, Gravitation by Maki Murakami. Yeah, that's uh, that was one of my faves. Oh my god, I'm I'm just gonna close up this segment and then, I'm go then we're gonna talk. <laughs> <laughs> Here we follow aspiring singer Shuichi Shendo and his band Bad Luck. When he has a nagging encounter with the tall and blonde stranger Eri Yuki, who shits all of his lyrical skills, or lack thereof, Shuichi is immediately intrigued in a true toxic Yahweh fashion. Talk about a healthy start to any relationship. Yesterday, <laughs> I tried to reread the first volume of Gravitation. And let me oh. tell you, Paul, I wanted to yell. Between, okay, I don't, I don't want to be mean, but between the art, which isn't my cup of joe in any form, shape, or way, and then the writing... And then the character interactions, the pacing, everything. I was just like, mamma mia. We've certainly developed as comic creators since then, huh? <laughs> as they're not aged well. Because other things from that era have uh, aged beautifully. Uh, but uh, I didn't actually read the manga. I watched the anime. Thing, ah, so. okay, okay. I don't know if I ever read everything as a teen. So, oh my god, let me just insert this story that I may or may not leave on the cutting room floor. So I had a friend in my teens. We're, we're gonna let her remain nameless because we're no longer friends for reasons that will become obvious down the line of the story. <laughs> but we met roughly when I was 13 through the grand internet. We started chatting online. And this was, of course, when I was still... I was still very young, deep in the closet, didn't even realize yet that I was what I assumed at the time was bisexual. She was my first true crush. I fell madly in love with this girl. We played games together, she she came to visit, and her obsession was Gravitation, the manga. Oh. She wasn't the one who introduced me to Yaoi, because I had found it myself just before, which we will touch upon in the episode of Fake, but she definitely introduced me to Gravitation, I had never heard of it. And she was so obsessed with this, she imitated the art style and everything, and then she was like, I just wish it wasn't gay, was her comment about oh. it, and it made me go, okay? That's a charged opinion, because even I, w I was very, I know the term liberal has lost all sense of meaning, but I was very progressive in terms of homosexuality, even as a kid. I never found it weird that two men could be together. I don't know, because I did certainly not grow up in a progressive household, so I don't know where that stemmed from, but I never found that troublesome. And I was like, okay, well, that's unfortunate that that's your opinion. And then we sort of just like slid apart. We, we just fell apart as friends for no really big reasons. Years later, Paul, years later, I was in my 20s. She reaches out through Facebook and it's like, oh, hey, I found you. Oh my God, like, how are you doing? And I'm saying, 
dog we were friends when we were like 14 what was okay you want to rekindle now <laughs> sure okay let's have a chat and then we chatted for a while i was like lel by the way do you want a fun fact when we chatted as teens i actually really crushed on you and she dead flat paul dead flat tells me yeah that's why i cut you out because i was extremely homophobic at the time and i didn't want anything to do with you oh my god <laughs> <laughs> so she realized i never told her i was Shit. i was clearly not fucking subtle at all i was probably just like uh. flying over in the corner just like girl but yeah, safe to say she told me this and I thought, huh, well, she, in her defense, she had clearly gone through like a maturing process and... Top points for honesty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For all intents and purposes, I think she's probably a completely great person today. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> so whenever I think of gravitation, I immediately think of her. <laughs> but that has nothing to do right. with the fact that I didn't like it rereading it now. I just, I didn't think it was that great it's, it's really funny i have extremely intense associations with gravitation as well like i guess possibly it was just the time of our lives that we were reading it i was a bit older i was um for context i was watching the anime uh, in the last year of university when i just started dating my partner who i'm still with and i associate it so strongly she lived with her parents at the time i associate it so strongly with her attic room in her parents house when i used to come visit and we used to be like, hee we've downloaded some yaoi. <laughs> Let's watch Gravitation together. Oh, that's so amazing. I know exactly the vibe you're talking about, though, because that's how I was in my first relationship, too, because we super, super legally sailed the seven seas and found anime mm -hmm. super legally. Yeah, because you couldn't get it any other way. Right? Yeah, yeah, by super legally sailing the seven seas. So we yep. <laughs> we super legally watched super legal anime together all summer. So I also have these strong anime memories from like my, of course, we're not together anymore like you are, but from one of my first relationships. Oh, right. It's such a strong bonding experience, I think, doing that, especially back when it was harder to get a hold of because there was an excitement involved in whether the download would fail, whether it would be in English or in your case, I guess, have the right subtitles. Yes. Um uh, so many times that we downloaded something, I was like, it's in Spanish again. <laughs> but this actually, this brings me to something that I wanted to ask you about. Okay. And maybe you've covered this elsewhere in your, uh, in your writing, but there is a certain sense I remember, or was for me anyway, and, and probably for my partner as well, who, who for context is bi, but probably didn't realize it at the time, is that there was a sense of titillation involved in seeing gay relationships depicted in a world where you just never saw that outside of the context of maybe like a super serious biopic or something about somebody's life or and even then very very rarely and in a way i despite its problematic elements and despite the problematic approach that i took to it because i didn't have any gay friends you know i was dating someone who was bi but i didn't realize and she didn't realize that was part of what opened my eyes to the possibility of all, all sorts of different relationships in a very imperfect way and a very unreal way. But at the same time, I credit it with being part of how I came to be more kind of quote unquote liberal or progressive was just encountering it and being like, okay, I'm going to deal with this on, on its own terms. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely touching upon something very quintessential with Yahoo because despite the troubles with it, which I will touch upon, I do think one of the more inviting factors of the yaoi genre is that since it 
in its most anally described, no pun intended, way, is made by and for women. It also doesn't this is also very different from yaoi to yaoi, but a lot of yaoi, you won't see actual genitalia. You will see these infamous lightning rods that just yeah. blurs out the penis. Or just the infamous flat pubic area that's... Uh... Yes, there's just <laughs> nothing there. I would argue without going too fucking Freudian or whatever on this, because I'm not a psychologist or a human expert, but if I were to put my own spin on it, I think it also leaves a big room for both self-insert, but also seeing sex portrayed in a rather intimate but weirdly sterile way. So no matter what genitalia you have, you can maybe see something you like if you are of a sexual nature. Mm. Yeah, now that's interesting. And I did hear a theory like when I was younger that effectively the male-male relationship was a sort of like a non-threatening relationship. I don't know how legit the psychology behind this is, thinking about it now, judging it up. But the idea was that there was no rival involved in the relationship. Like a woman could see a relationship between two men without there being a woman in the relationship. And perhaps that was even easier to self-impose onto. I don't know if that's the same angle that you mean, but I also think there's something to the fact that... Oh my god, again, I didn't expect this episode to go so deep. But a lot of women struggle with how men approach them. To this day in society because of how gender roles still play out in a lot of at least the western world mm. men are placed above in the hierarchy from pure strength and their entitlement to everything so i do think that there is something to the fact that when women read yaoi none of these men were threatening to the woman as a reader as well these men would never uh -huh. pay her any interest and they were purely there to have a sexual interest in one another, and they would never harass this woman. And there's certainly, I've heard, especially given, you know, if you accept the idea that Yaoi is for women, by women, that there's a sort of a, a voyeuristic element to it as well. And that really chimes with what you just said, that there's a sort of, you're seeing this relationship through a glass in a way. Yeah, and th that is certainly something Yaoi has been criticized for, and to an extent, rightly so, that it... Just like lesbian porn glamorize and completely removes how a lot of quote-unquote real lesbian relationships are, then Yaoi is not remotely rooted in reality, which again is something we're going to touch upon further down the line. Yeah, yeah. actually I was, I was going to mention that comparison because I think it's quite apt in the same way that a lot of lesbian porn is by men for men. Yeah. Not all of it, obviously, but that is a decent analogy to the way in which Yaoi, not all of it, but a decent amount of it is certainly the same. Absolutely, 100%. Also, more mainstream folks like Clamp started integrating Yaoi into their publishing. Some examples are RG Vita, Tokyo Babylon, and even Cardcaptor Sakura. And these were some of the first Yaoi-influenced media to wash over a Western audience. As with anything, when it reaches a certain level of visibility and fame, it also starts getting scrutinized and criticized. The Yaoi debate, also known as Yaoi Ronso, kicked off in the mid-90s. The debate was mainly in a series of essays published in a feminist magazine called Choiceir. I have no idea how to pronounce this, but it's spelled C-H-O-I-S-I-R. So it could be Choiceir or Choiceir. I have no idea. And here, in an open letter, Japanese gay writer Masaki Sato condemned the genre and accused it of being homophobic in its depiction of gay men. Then instead of being a progressive tool, 
it instead reinforced the misogyny of Japanese society. She even went as far as calling fans of Yaoi, quote, disgusting women, end quote, who, quote, have a perverse interest in sexual intercourse between men, end quote. Wow, interesting. Yeah. And this sparked a years-long debate where fans of the genre argued that Yaoi is a form of entertainment and does not aim for a realistic portrayal of homosexuality. Some authors left the genre altogether, while others sought out ways to accommodate a gay audience and create healthier narratives. I will touch upon my own gripes and grievances with the genre when I'm done wrapping up this bastardized history section. Not because my opinion is the law, but because I see both sides of this debate and I understand why to this day is a latent discussion. Yeah, I'm fascinated to hear this origin of this debate because I've seen it played out in an English audience, but online in the early mid 2000s. Yeah, hearing that it had its origin in a Japanese magazine is fascinating. Yeah, and as far back as the 90s. So again, pre-everybody folks internet access time. Before we jump to my little summary at the end, we have to touch upon the 2000s and up till present day. As if we needed more proof that sex always sells, during the economic crisis caused by the lost decade, the yaoi market grew where other manga struggled. Now, there was also an increase in male readers, as much as 25-30% to of the readership were men. Not to mention that yaoi had finally started making it overseas as well thanks to the internet, and even getting a designated yaoi convention aptly named YaoiCon in 2001 in America. This is sadly where the reports on the evolution of the genre starts to teeter out a little bit. I couldn't find any major or otherwise fun facts slash events. But I will mention that in Thailand, they've seen an explosion of popularity in the genre since 2014 when a TV series called Lovesick aired. And quickly reading up on it, I get the impression that Thailand has kind of adopted the yaoi torch from Japan and is currently reinventing the genre. I have not watched or read any Taiyawi myself, but a lot of it seems to deal with healthier tropes than those of old. This beautifully segues me into something that we have to cover in this episode, which is the problematic and often difficult landscape of Yaoi, as well as the critical backlash on the genre's portrayal of LGBTQ people. Full disclosure, I'm not an academic person, and a lot of this probably needs a much bigger deep dive into the human psyche than this normally lighthearted podcast can provide. Yeah, we are going deep here. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but it feels wrong, however, to not remotely acknowledge the side of Yaoi in an episode dedicated to the format. This is where I'm going to touch upon the tropes. Again, trigger warning. I've already trigger warned at the beginning, but this is where we dive into some much heavier sides of Yaoi. A common trope in Yaoi is how one of the men, most commonly the main protagonist, doesn't identify as gay. He's simply in the end won over by the conviction of the often assertive and all kinds of invasive male counterpart. And there are several issues here with this because one, it erases the gay identity and simply states that love is love without acknowledging that homosexuality is its own thing. Two, it portrays gay men as predatory and abusive. And three, it taps into rigid gender norms and trauma often instilled in women, now suddenly portrayed on men as well. This is where the history of Yaoi kind of comes into play. Society, albeit way too slowly, develops and adapts over time. And what is today considered age milk was once revolutionary and game-changing. The tricky part is when the genre holds onto these tropes without examining them thoroughly. Like, why does Yaoi have the tendency to impose gender roles on their characters? 
The most well-known phenomena of this system, and you're definitely going to be familiar with this, is the system called the SEME and UK. Mm, yeah. Uh, SEME simplified means top, and UK simplified means bottom. And these terms originated from martial art applied to attacking and receiving and became LGBTQ slang for anal sex. This depiction is heavily based on a heteronormative society, how there has to be a masculine and feminine part of any given relationship. And this possibly harkens back to how the female readers used the UK part as a self-insert. I've read plenty of yaoi where rape is treated as the de facto way of courtship. No means yes, and instead of addressing just how harmful this is, it reads as endearing. That the semi just can't control their passionate love for the UK. I could probably do an entire episode and a half of why this is incredibly questionable, but I'm not an expert on the topic and I do not wish to step too heavily in the salad. All I would say that it certainly is challenging. Yeah, and I think for, thankfully, we're living in a kind of a society where that aspect of media is being exposed, talked about, you know, from everything from yaoi to just a soap you watched back in the 90s. It's this kind of trope of the the well-meaning, passionate advance that we now read as completely unwanted. Yeah, um, yeah. It's everywhere, and it's no wonder that it's found in an explicitly sexual genre as well. Yeah, and I think the point I was trying to make is that it's not that surprising seeing as what the genre itself is based in, that we will stumble upon a lot of these really troublesome things. And the thing is, I'm I'm not sitting here trying to be like, oh, you have to forgive Yaoi for being questionable, because you, you definitely don't. And if Yaoi isn't for you, I super respect it, and I know a lot of people just completely shrug it off and are disinterested or even resentful, and that's valid. I think where I get more of a gripe with it is that I've read much more recent yaoi from current day and age where they still really clumsily thread into this territory where mm. they still lean on a lot of these tropes and this is where I have to shoot in that I don't mean to gatekeep and again I think we even touched upon this in previous episodes that people have different ways of working through their own things be it trauma or interests or whatever if that for you is to, you know, make a very difficult and heavy to process thing, that's fine. I'm not here to say that you can't or shouldn't do that. But when it kind of seems to be that on large, several popular yaois are still really sketch. Like I read one called, I think it's called Coyote. And I read the first volume and I was just... They use, like, outdated language that I don't even want to say myself because I think today it's recognized as a slur, but it's when you address a character who, quote-unquote, has two genders. And they still... Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they still used language like this to make something seem exotic. And I was like, dude, this shit came out, like, 2018, 2019 or something around there. Why are we still referring to people like this? Yeah, and this gets back to what I was saying about language, is that it moves in, it's almost like different slipstreams in different parts of culture and around different parts of the world, and even within cultures, within individual countries, you can get different levels of progressiveness in mm. different areas, and yeah, it's amazing how resilient certain tropes are to change. There's also an, an interesting sort of shift that I've noticed in the way that we talk and think about fiction that's happened over the last, you know, kind of gradually over probably about 30 years generally, but more accelerated recently, which is that more and more we expect our literature to be morally aligned 
to depict things that are moral and to depict relationships that are healthy. And there was a point at which people just didn't think of writing in that way at all. Its purpose wasn't to depict moral, healthy things. It was simply to depict and to explore. And I think for a lot of writers still, especially older writers, they don't really think of what they're writing as as requiring any bur- any moral burden, and you know you can agree or disagree with that. But those people are definitely out there. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I see where you're coming from. Actually, this kind of segues beautifully into the conclusion I have to my text. So I think I'm just going to stick to that. At the end of the day, it's not my place to advocate or judge people's reading desires. Human history is not linear, it's cyclical, and right now it feels like we're in a very rough part of that circle. Calling all of Yahweh bad and harmful would flat out be a lie, and I personally wish to advocate for a genre that certainly aided me a lot in discovering my identity. I was possibly too young when I first stumbled upon it at age 14, but it also did not turn me into a horrible person or a menace to society. Instead, I'd argue it aided my sexual liberty as well as nuanced my view on humanity. Is that a lot of credit to give a horny comic genre? Possibly. (laughs) But I'll yell from the top of the barricades that we need sex in fiction, and gatekeeping people's fictional expression is a slippery slope into a Puritan society. Mm. Yeah, true that. And the thing is, you you get to carry on growing as a person. You get to be introduced to one interesting concept by one thing that could be problematic in other ways, and then redress the other problematic things as you're introduced to another thing. No one genre, no one comic can give you all the answers or a perfect look on life. That's one of the things I love about comics, about writing, is that every single one you read is a glimpse into a different person's mind and the simulated minds of other people within those person, those people's minds, which is just crazy. You get to live lives and simulated lives over and over again and test them against yourself and stretch yourself and discover things about people's assumptions and the way they see the world. It's, it's incredible. And for me, problematic and unproblematic diversity is really important within that experience i couldn't agree more and i i know that i've yelled about this in previous episodes so i'm gonna try to prevent myself from stepping up on the soapbox but i firmly do believe that we need difficult themes we need them to be explored and to be portrayed because there are people out there who will feel seen and validated and acknowledged by that happening even if it is the gnarliest most difficult stuff there is someone out there who's gonna go wow so it isn't just me. I'm not alone. This has happened to other people, be it a fucking fictional Yaoi character, you know? So <laughs> yeah. I I really do detest and it feels like some kind of almost like Illuminati tinfoil hat conspiracy that's going on right now, where we are really going through this purifying of media where there's just no sex but an abundance of violence. And I don't know what that says about humanity, and it makes me really sad and really it makes me feel like an alien on my own planet that what is deemed for most people the most natural act between our living species, aka sex is viewed as this abomination and then sitting on youtube and seeing people's heads get blown off that's just like okay it's a very st- i mean i feel like this has been with us since the 90s and the attitude just isn't going away it keeps on resurfacing and re-establishing itself over and over again in a cycle not sure what to do about it i mean other than 
discuss Stick Fight Island on a podcast. <laughs> oh my god. So to to lift the energy a little bit, I will say that I did read several hours as mentioned for this. So I read Dick Fight Island Volume 1. That had me almost in tears because if you want a concept that is just banana split bonkers crazy, where you have this group of islands, their hierarchy is fighting for leadership by making is a one-on-one fight and they're trying to make one another come. And if you come, you lose. <laughs> and then you're out of the hierarchy. If you just want to see some wild-ass dick contraptions because they hide their penises so you can't easily jerk them off or give them blowjobs or whatever, but their butts are out. And do you believe me when I say, Paul, that in this society, no one knows what anal fingering is? So when one of these dudes have been away from the island for five years and learned the secret technique of the IRL world, because this is set in our universe, he has had a roommate that learned him that prostate gland is indeed a thing. And that if you finger it, it feels really fucking good. So he comes back to the ring and he immediately makes one of these dudes blow his load because he's fingering him in his butt. I sat here going, I can't believe this. That someone sat down and made this and I love it. (laughs) Damn, that's hilarious. It's so fucking funny. So that one is very, very humoristic. Then I, as mentioned, I read Gravitation, which was a big blog for me. I read a little bit of Banana Fish because it seems like obligatory reading material for a Yahoo episode. And that was just very disturbing and hard for me to read because it touched upon several stuff that I'm not going to mention here. But a bunch of trigger warnings if you look that up. Yeah, it's, it's, I've watched a bit of the anime. I haven't watched any of the, I've read any of the manga. It, it's hard stuff. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I think there's a lot of debate about whether it should count as Yaoi because it's, um, it's much more grounded than your average Yaoi and the focus isn't necessary. It's almost like a, a drama that happens to have gay relationships in. I don't think it's a Yaoi at fucking all by yeah. today's standards. Not to now sound like an, a mega hypocrite and be like, mm, uh, the terminology Yaoi doesn't apply here, but it could have been. Th- the grimiest, grittiest Hollywood movie made by fucking Nolan or something, and nobody would have called it a gay movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and it's it's I think one of the sort of debatable defining points of a yaoi is is the focus on the relationship as the kind of heart of the story, mm. and that's definitely not the case in Banana Fish. It's it's a uh, almost like a sideline to the to the main plot, which is which is all about kind of gangs and mafia and all sorts of things that are really hard to deal with. Yeah, I, I did not know what to expect. I went in completely unknowing and I, I lay in bed last night going, oh, okay, I don't think I've got to read a lot of this because this is not for me. Right. What was I gonna say? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things that sort of uh, we're, we're kind of circling around here is that you mentioned that you didn't find many particularly significant events in the history of Yaoi after sort of the early mid 2000s. And I think that's the point at which you can see its influences dissipating throughout culture, because that's a sort of like, that's the beginning of the modern media boom, really. It's becoming a lot harder to classify what is a yaoi, what isn't a yaoi. You know, I, I have friends who write stuff that if I pointed at it sort of 10 years ago and they were, and it was obvious that they were complete weebs, it would be like, yeah, that's yaoi. <laughs> but it's, it's not. It's treated as just straight up LGBT fiction. I think that also talks to a, to a sort of a change in the way that we see that kind of fiction and a growing diversity in that kind of fiction. And finally, a growing mainstream 
element to that fiction as well. I'm thinking specifically of uh, the insane impact that Heartstopper has had. Yeah, 100%. You know, and, and the audience is there. And the audience was grown by Yowie, I think. Oh, yeah. I I don't think it's too much of a reach to say that without Yowie, we wouldn't have Heartstopper. Even if Heartstopper, again, isn't a traditional Yowie in that sense, I would say it's more Shaun and I from the very little I read. The roots are undeniable, in my opinion. Yeah, even if you haven't lived in that culture, even if you didn't sort of read things and associate them with these words, they have completely influenced webtoons, they have completely influenced webcomic culture. Technically, the first quote-unquote yaoi that I had any contact with was actually written by an American. It was a webcomic called Teenriki. You know, and, and some purists would say it's not yaoi if yaoi come from Japan. So it already, at that point in time, which was sort of very, very early 2000s, it already started influencing Western culture, diffusing into comics in general, setting the pace for the future of the webcomic scene. And who knew it would turn from like a bunch of people making silly little comics for each other in their spare time into this insane, huge industry that's creating pieces that are being picked up by major corporations and adapted. It's, it's mad. Then again, to harken back to what I already touched upon in the text, though, is that, surprise, surprise, sex sells. And if we look at any kind of media, I'm almost kind of shocked to just realize, I would say, minus video games, they've all kind of developed through pornography and sex. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that we got VHS, the fact that we got DVD, the fact that we got Blu-ray, it was all controlled by the porn industry. It's not that surprising when you sit down and think about it that sex is the driving factor of a lot of media. Probably always will be. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's why I, I I will keep yelling that we need sex. Even if you yourself aren't interested in it, we as a society need to just embrace that sex is the most natural part of our lives. It always have been and it always should be. If that scares you, and I'm not talking about people who aren't interested in sex whatsoever, I'm talking about the people who are closeted about their sexual desires. If that's you, then you just need to take a hard look in the mirror, man, and you need to, I don't know, you need to masturbate more often or something. (laughs) Bonafide advice by Jaws there. (laughs) In today's climate, it is undeniable that when you look at how LGBTQ kids, especially trans kids and people are treated, that now more than ever, we need to protect and elevate media that depicts and celebrates the quote-unquote other. The other is here to stay, and they always have and always will. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing that I can add to that, really. So what did you think? Did you have fun? I did, yeah. Thank you, Teacher Jaws. That was (laughs) enlightening. I learned stuff. I got to ask questions in class. I got to share my opinions as well. It was was very enjoyable. And I'm looking forward to the next few episodes as well, because we will be actually reading some seminal yaoi. Next episode, we will be reading New York, New York. And then the following episode, we'll be reading Fake And thank you again for the lesson. Thank you for wanting to attend my very niche class. I'll uh, see you for the next one. See you. Bye. Bye. My poor 
yes, I'll bring this just I want to go full Watashi Wa on this shit and Americanize every Japanese word, which makes me so annoyed. <laughs> go all the way in. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah okay, okay. As, as we said in the beginning. <laughs> no, uh, no point, no climax, etc., etc. Uh, next week we will be. Uh, ah! <laughs> what happened? I was wow. so good. Wow, I was wow. so good up until just then. <sighs> um, okay. <laughs> so. I blah, 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 my brain. It's been a long day. <laughs> <laughs>